Welcome to Juniper Meets North of Love with Katie and Nalani, a podcast for moms by moms where we guide women to explore the world around and within them through real conversations with real moms. With seven children between the two of us, we fully understand the trials and triumphs of motherhood. We also know firsthand the spaces that are lacking and where moms need more support, education, and encouragement. We are here to fill in that gap. We're so excited you're here and look forward to building a beautiful community with you. And if you're really digging the content we're sharing, then don't forget to hit the subscribe button and to share on your favorite social media. Let's get to it. Today, we have Lindsay Lassa on our show. Lindsay's passionate about her work in the nonprofit world and has spent the last six years working in the homelessness and harm reduction realm. She's guided by a strong sense of what's right and what is fair. Lindsay aims to be an active member in her community and works to make it a better place. Not only does she work in the nonprofit world, but she's a yoga instructor, instructor, an avid hiker, a chai tea drinker, and a little bit of a foodie. Being from British Columbia, her heart and soul always feels at home in the mountains. You can find her in an element outside hiking, kayaking, swimming, camping, or walking her dog. You will not find her biking downhill, entering a cave, skydiving, bungee jumping, or scuba diving. Lindsay lives in Grand Prairie with her loving husband, Julian, and her fur children. Also, fun fact, Lindsay also hiked to base camp of Mount Everest. Am I correct, Lindsay? Yeah, I have. It's like, who does that? Like, beautiful. Who does that? That's amazing. (laughs) With her dad. With my dad. Oh, no way. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's cool even to say, like, I know someone that's hiked Mount Everest. (laughs) Just to the very bottom. (laughs) It's still Mount Everest. Well, I mean, like still it's still you hiked part of mount everest whether it was like a kilometer up like you still were on the mount everest yeah yeah it's a beautiful beautiful place i'd love to go back to nepal and do more hiking and you've traveled like a bunch of places yeah i have a i have a traveler i know i wish i could have or I should have included that in my bio that I sent because I still really want to travel. I haven't been so long. It kills me a little bit every day. Um, my WestJet points are like burning a hole in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, as we got married in 2019, so I haven't traveled since 2019. And it makes oh, me sad. <laughs> wow. So tell us, where have you been? Tell us all the places you've been. Um, I've been to 19 different countries. So I've been to Canada, the US, but it's just like layovers. Um, Mexico, Honduras, uh, Costa Rica, Panama, Peru. And then I've been to um, United Arab Emirates. I've been to China. I've been to Nepal, Bangladesh, India, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. And I think that's it. Wow. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Which was your favorite? Um, I think Thailand's my favorite. I've been to Thailand four times. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's like cheap if you want it to be. The people are so nice and amazing. And it's got a really good mix of like, you can just be a bum on the beach for a day. You can like go on a hike in the jungle. You can experience culture. The food is really good. Like a lot of Asia is like that or Southeast Asia is like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that's wild. Like, so have you always wanted to travel or is that like, like, um, like you're not very old. So it's not like you've spent it's like, your whole life traveling. No. And it's weird. Cause like my parents didn't really travel a lot either. Um, 
I've always just been a person that's like curious and I like exploring and I like learning about different things. And then after the first time I went to Mexico, I was like, this is going to be a thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So. And did you go to Peru with your mom? Yeah. Speaking of hiking, my mom and I hiked to Machu Picchu. Yeah. So you can go to Machu Picchu by like bus or you can hike there and we hiked there. It was it an intense hike. Um, yeah. I didn't find it too bad. Everest base camp was harder and had higher elevation. So it's okay. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> it wasn't Mount Everest, but I mean, it was fine. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're always sharing pictures. Just even you and Julian hike a lot together, just kind of around here. Hey. Yeah. Well, um, Curry, but. Like to go to Grand Cache a lot. Um, mm-hmm especially if it's just for a day trip. Tumblr has lots of hiking too, but it's just like a little bit too far away. Um, It's better if you spend the night. Um, And then we go to Jasper too. Last year we bought a park pass for the year and like, like it paid for itself probably like three times. (laughs) Wow. So, and does Julian travel a lot too? Like, is he like an avid traveler or like, are Um, you like, come on, Julian, we're going. Yeah, I think I instigate more of those plans um the first time he ever left the country was when we went to asia together in 2014 um and we went to indonesia thailand vietnam and malaysia and but he's like the best traveler ever he's like so easygoing he has guts of steel so he never gets sick (laughs) um and the only downside is that he's a giant so he doesn't fit he's very tall planes or trains or boats I had a photo album going like Julian the Giant in Asia and it was like of him like trying to walk through doors and the door would be like up to here. <laughs> really? yeah. So I feel like when you guys are like are you up to his shoulders maybe or mm-hmm. below his shoulders? Yeah like his chest kind of. <laughs> yeah he's very tall. Mm-hmm. Very tall. Mm-hmm. All right. Um so tell us about your work in the nonprofit world. And I said before we started recording, like I'm very ignorant to this whole world. So I'm excited to learn. So teach me, teach me, uh, teach me. Teach me. Um, I started working in the nonprofit world probably in, since I left university. So like 2013, which doesn't seem that long ago. And then I think about that as 2021. And then I'm like, oh, kind of weird. Um, so what did you take in university? I have a bachelor of arts in social sciences. Okay. It's like a super useless degree. Oh. <laughs> so like it's a three-year program, which means if I wanted to do a master's, I'd have to go back to school because you need to have a four-year program. And then also if you want to do a master's, you have to have like one, uh, concentration, uh, where I did social sciences. So I could just be like, oh, I want to take this sociology course. Cool. It'll work towards my degree. If I want to take this poli sci course, it'll work towards my degree. So it's a pretty useless degree, (laughs) but, um, it helped me get the job that I'm in now for sure. Um, so when I was done university, I worked in a group home for, almost a year, left, traveled for a bit. Um, Then I came back, worked in the school as an an EA, uh, left and traveled, (laughs) came back. And then I got like the first job I could get, which was at a terrible furniture store. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> You're like, yeah, degree at the furniture yeah. store. <laughs> exactly. And then I um, started working uh, at another nonprofit for uh, the Housing First program. And when I started, I was a housing outreach worker. So this was in 2015. And I, this is when I kind of started the line of work that I'm in now. So 2015, I was a housing outreach worker. I um, take individuals who are experiencing homelessness, work with them to get the things that they needed to be housed. So usually that means getting an income, um, getting ID, that sort of stuff, and then help them uh, apply for housing, take them to viewings of apartments, um, and then if they were approved, help them move into their apartments, um, do the walkthrough, do the lease signing, all that kind of stuff. And then after that, they would go to a different social worker or case manager um, that would work with them to keep them housed. So I did that for, I think, almost two years. And then I quit and traveled again. <laughs> and then when I came back, I was a case manager um, in the Housing First program, just covering a a medical leave. And then I became a street. Oh, no, before that, I um, did, I was a research assistant for the supervised consumption site in Grand Prairie. So the supervised consumption site is where people can go to consume illicit substances, and then there's staff there to supervise in case they overdose. Um, and then they're also there to provide uh, referrals or direction in the community for other supports. Um, so I would interview drug users and say, like, if there was a supervised consumption site in Grand Prairie, what, what, how do you think it should look? Like, should it be a fixed site? Should there, what should the rules be? Um, and then also identifying whether they were risky drug users. So like, how often have you overdosed in the last six months? What is your typical way of using? Um, do you use alone? That sort of thing. And then I... I think I went to Peru <laughs> and then I um, came back and was a street outreach worker. So working with street engaged individuals, getting them connected to services. Um, and then I really needed a break from frontline work. I was getting pretty burnt out and I became an educator. So still educating um, like schools, businesses, agencies about um, HIV, hepatitis, safer sex, um, harm reduction, that sort of stuff. And now I am a team lead and my position is like a bit of a catch-all where I work right now. Um, I do, I supervise a few different uh, staff members in different programs. I um, am a volunteer and practicum student coordinator. So we often get practicum students who are like addiction counseling students or social work students. And then I just like sign off on their hours and give them direction on like what to learn about and what to do in the field. Um, and then I do social media for the company that I work for now. Um, yeah, it's just like a bit of a catch-all kind of thing. Yeah, so you've kind of like hit all the like from like the base to the bottom to the top. <laughs> yeah, start from the bottom. Now we're here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, I can just like, do you find like working with like the companies and the community is difficult to educate them on like what like harm reduction is or like the safe site? Like, is there a lot of like people don't want that? 
that aren't in like aren't addicts or homelessness yeah absolutely it's called NIMBY or not in my backyard um Mm. a lot of NIMBYism in uh Grand Prairie part of it I think is because uh people have a hard time being empathetic if it doesn't affect them um is a big thing and I think that goes with lots of things like doesn't affect people aren't affected by COVID, then they don't want to understand what's going on. Um, yeah. People have never been homeless or don't have homeless family or friends, then they don't care and they don't want somebody sleeping in a tent in a park for whatever reason. Um, and especially with harm reduction, there's this um, sense that, uh, and this goes with stigma associated with substance use, that uh, choosing to use drugs is like a moral failure. If you don't have the strength yourself to just stop using substances, then you're a bad person. Um, So that's a lot of like the mindset that is really, really hard to change. Um, It's not all like that though. Uh, A big thing that is, there's a correlation is that where there's like heavy concentration of um, conservative values and policies and politics, um, harm reduction isn't given the same value or importance hmm. wow oh i have like my i have so many questions because so when you're saying like the moral the moral aspect of it that the community members are like thinking that the drug users have failed do the drug users and homelessness also feel that about themselves 100 percent, right like people make disgusting comments on Facebook and we've heard of clients who have read those comments and they really, really affect them. Um, People recognize that they get treated differently if they're in a store or even in a public space, like say for example, the library, like it's a public space, people are allowed to be there, but they get treated differently if they look like they're homeless or look like they use drugs. people receive different care in medical center or medical services if they are a known drug user. Um, and it's harder for people to access services when they're using substances because, uh, you know, you're not in the same frame of mind, you might not remember your appointments. And then that breaks down the relationship that you had with that service provider. And it's kind of like a never ending cycle. Right. Mm-hmm. And also like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Nalani. Were you going to say something? Oh, no, go ahead, Katie. Um, Do you think, well, not think, like in my mind, what I imagine it being like when you're, it's like me, I'm in my bubble. I'm around people who are like me. Mm -hmm. So that's normal to me. I would assume it would be the same with the homelessness and addictions where it's like, that's their community of people. That's their normal. Like, obviously they must realize there is a normal I don't want to say maybe normal is not even the right word. Like, again, I'm ignorant to this, this whole world of things, but it's, I feel like it would be really hard to get out of that when everything, you know, and the people that, you know, that's your community. Absolutely. That's a thing that happens for sure too. Like when I was working in housing first, we would have clients that would move into their apartments and they would sometimes get evicted because they had too many guests, but they can't say no to the people that are their community and are their friends. And, um, and that just goes to show it. And if they're the support system that they have, whether it's healthy, quote unquote, or not, um, 
that's what they're going to access because that's what they know. Mm -hmm. Do you find there's like a generalization of people who are um, self-medicating? 100%. (laughs) Um, Maybe not even 100%, but I like, I think it's like, in my opinion, maybe like 95 or 98% of people who are like struggling with addiction, like there's obviously like recreational substance use or like uh, social substance use, but people who are really, really struggling with substance, it's a coping mechanism, right? There's amazing chemicals that come from drugs that make us feel good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's so many layers to it. It's not just the addiction. It's like the trauma that goes along, like that they've had throughout their life. Maybe they're um, a generational thing. Mm-hmm. that has happened right or or neurodiversities that go undiagnosed which mm-hmm. is I think difficult I'm gonna guess because then when they're trying to reach these you know appointments and different like things then they're not met with a lot of kindness mm-hmm. uh, they already look in rough shape so is there could you speak to that a little bit or like, is there programs in regard to that as well to, to help people out? If there's anyone listening that might be in that situation or have someone in their life that they love in that situation. Yeah, for sure. There are programs in Grand Prairie, which is good. There are programs and services and supports that can help. Obviously there needs to be more to help more people, but there are services um, and they range from, harm reduction to treatment, to recovery groups, to shelters, like there are services and programs. So if people are looking for help um, with substance use specifically, um, there are, there's like um, ICAT at Aberdeen is mental health and addictions walk-in if you don't have a psychologist or therapist already. Um, There's lots of like helplines and stuff like that too. There's the Northern Addiction Center is the treatment center here in Grand Prairie. Um, And they also have like a, I think it's called a relapse and recovery or something in recovery group. And it's a very like NA or AA or 12 step program focused, but it, that works for some people. So that's fine. And then there's also a friends and family group. So if you are a family member of somebody who is using substances, that's for them to understand maybe a little bit more what's going on, how they can be supported and supportive. Um, There is a housing first program still in Grand Prairie. So people have to be experiencing homelessness and be in Grand Prairie, and then they get an assessment done. And then based on their assessment, they get moved onto a team, like how I mentioned before about like having a case manager that would help you find housing and then help you maintain your housing. But it's also finding someone that's willing to have you rent from them too. Is that a difficult thing? Or is there, I just can't imagine there being an abundance of like, yeah, for sure. Like I'll be your landlord. Like, yeah, that's, um, there is some relationships that are built in the housing first program. So there's like some landlord companies as opposed to private landlords that, um, have that relationship built. So they know that they're a housing first client. They know what, is um, kind of what is expected. And especially from like a sense that like the rent is gonna be paid. So 
typically people are on number of supports or they're on welfare um, and that's not enough to pay for rent so they get a rent enhancement um, if there's damages in the unit the city can help pay for that after they move out um, and that's not a hundred percent guarantee right like that's based on the condition of the apartment before what happened that's yeah. what I mean. um, so and then they also know that the case manager is going to be in that unit at least once a month so there is like that relationship and the standards that have been built um, when it comes to private landlords it's a little bit harder and we live in a city where like we have a very high like average income from the population right um, mm -hmm. so I would rather, you know, I'm a landlord, I'd rather charge $1,500 for my bachelor apartment and get somebody that I know isn't going to have a hard time paying that rather than charge like $700, which is more affordable, but this person is like homeless and a drug user and like, will probably mess it up anyway. <laughs> yeah. Like, and when you're saying that, I'm like, I probably would choose your option one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, like as a, as a landlord, so like, how do you how do you be more accepting and not that I'm not accepting of it, but how are you like, yeah, let's, I guess not be in it for the money would be your number one thing, but. But when you're a landlord, you usually are. It's your yeah. That's your point of yeah. it. Right. Like yeah. that's a really hard line. I think a lot of it's like, a. I know there's, it's a hard line to walk anyway. Cause you don't want to like say the wrong thing or I don't. Cause I'm like, Oh, like what's right. And what's wrong. Like, I like we have family members that were homeless and addictions and a lot of the time it was just you know if they weren't there they weren't around like mm -hmm. they weren't there it was out of sight out of mind which isn't I think that's how a lot of people end up in that situation where someone's given up on them right which how do you not give up on someone if they've burnt the bridge time and time again yeah that's where your supports come in handy mm -hmm. yeah and to speak to you like saying I can understand why the landlord would pick option A or somebody who's working functioning in society charge them $1,500 a month because I know they're going to pay it um, as a landlord like that makes total sense and that's like a huge gray area in the work that I do is that like we live in a world of gray and we have to understand like everybody's perspective so I totally understand the fact that like, like I have a park behind my house. Like I don't want kids to play back there and like also have a homeless person sleeping in a tent back there, or I don't want them to find needles. Like you have to understand everybody's perspective. Yeah. So that's a really hard thing to do <laughs> because you, you want to advocate for people that can't advocate for themselves or have historically been like ignored or not, provided the right services but we have to be understanding of everybody's perspective and make the community or make the situation better for all parties not just one or the other that sounds so hard to do yeah which I, I guess gonna... is why you said you get led you led to burnout because I'm just like I am yeah. like we're like 10 minutes in here and I'm like oh my god like that would be so hard to do yeah right. so I'm guilty of that you know I'm thinking the orange part going there have like you know people finding needles there and then you get your like how dare they do drugs at the park where my kids are playing right my kid, you know like there's which I guess is where the harm reduction comes in and these safe safe injection sites 
are beneficial to the community? Yeah. Or is that your goal is so those needles aren't being found in the park, that they're in this space doing drugs safely for all parties, for themselves, for the community? Yeah, that's the ideal for sure. <laughs> but right. not every, like, do you, are there a lot of people using those sites or they're like, eh, I'm just going to do it here at the park instead? So a thing about Grand Prairie is that it's not a very like pedestrian friendly city. It's not a very transit friendly city. Um, And the other thing too, is that like opiates. So if you're using an opiate, like heroin or chances are people aren't using heroin here, they're using fentanyl or some sort of manufactured version of uh, fentanyl, like a, it's called a fentanyl analog. Um, So if you're using an opiate, so that's like fentanyl, heroin, oxys, anything with codeine in it, uh, morphine, hydromorph, opiates, we get physically dependent on them. Um, And when we are what is called dope sick, or we're going into withdrawal from opiates, it's like it's been described to me as like the worst flu that someone has ever gone through in their life, like time of the hundred. So um, you literally have fluid of some sort coming out of everywhere in your body. So like people's eyes will be running, their nose will be running, they'll be drooling, and then also experiencing like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, opiates are painkiller. So if they're in physical pain um, and they're using opiates to cover that physical pain, then they're gonna be in so much pain. Opiates also cover emotional pain. So if you don't have that coping mechanism, then you're going to be in pain one way or another. Um, fever, chills, achy, restless legs. So this is what an opiate withdrawal looks like. And it's obviously worse the longer you've been using opiates. So if I'm dope sick, I have dope in my pocket, have the means to use it right here, right now. And the supervised consumption site is like three blocks away. I'm not going to walk three blocks to get there. I'm going to use it. Yeah. Right. So it's not a perfect solution for sure, just to have an SCS or one SCS or that sort of thing, but it does help mitigate some of that. Right. And so for the people who aren't accepting or maybe just don't understand, what do you, what would you have to say to that? How do you help people to become more accepting, to understand something that they can't understand because they've never walked it? One thing that I really like to do is uh, talk about it in terms of money because people usually like the government to spend less money. Um, (laughs) Like if you're not going to care, this is where like me being a bitch comes in. If you're not going to care about (laughs) humans and whether they live or die or access services that they deserve, then maybe you'll care about money. Um, So in, I was like writing down all my facts. Um, SES in Alberta, um, they've done a study on it this last year. Um, each overdose managed by supervised consumption services that doesn't uh, involve EMS or ambulance being called saves about $1,600 per overdose. Wow. And then if you calculate all the, so this was, um, I think like in 2020, so it's maybe been like a year since they did this study. But if you calculate every single overdose that has happened at an SCS in Alberta since they opened, and those overdoses didn't involve EMS, 
that's 2.3 million dollars holy shit (laughs) it's a lot of money yeah (laughs) yeah and then another one is like people think that handing out syringes or needles is enabling and that's like another attitude where people aren't in support of harm reduction but okay then let's put the dollar figure on it um a needle costs like 10 cents and an HIV infection costs like millions of dollars in a person's lifetime. Yeah. So, and not to mention like the suffering that's also involved in contracting yes. HIV as well. Mm-hmm. So money talks, <laughs> that's usually what I try to do for people who don't maybe want to see the human side of it. If you want to see the financial side of it, then I feel like that's the benefit right there. We all want a government that spends less money we all want um, we all want to know that if we're experiencing an emergency that EMS can come and pick us up. Uh, we want to go to the hospital and not sit in emergency for 12 hours. Um, obviously having SES isn't going to mitigate that completely, but it'll mitigate some of it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So think selfishly if you don't want to think empathetically. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then, so what about on the, on the empathetic side? Um, Like this is super near and dear to my heart. I've had a lot of people I love really involved in addictions. um, And what, what miracles do you see within it for people who are supported just a little bit, like for people who have become the villain in someone's life for people who seem lost? Um, what turnaround do you see there? Um, I've seen people who, especially because I've worked in the line of work for the last few years, um, I've seen people who have been on the street, um, experiencing homelessness, heavy in addiction. And as they move through programs, they get to a place where they can keep their apartment. They keep their apartment for a year. They graduate the housing first program. And that's obviously not everyone, but it does happen for some people. And you can just see so much more like accomplishment and it gives me a sense of pride for them. And I think about like, if I want like specific examples, I know one individual, I was moving him into his apartment and we went to, we went somewhere to like pick up just like a few bags of his stuff. I think it was at the shelter. And then I was bringing him back to his apartment to bring it in. And he was just so grateful and so happy. And he uh, is a busker. So he plays guitar and sings and he sat in the back of my car and like played guitar for me. (laughs) And it was so sweet and so nice. And then I've seen him like downtown before. And every time he sees me, he would just be like, Lindsay, it's so nice to see you. And it's like just little things like that. And I think it's, it's hard. And this is where like burnout comes in because like you see that like really, really good side and you see these successes and you celebrate them. And then it's hard when maybe they relapse or they fall back or they isolate, but like, it's really important to celebrate those little things because they are huge successes. Right. Um, And then when it comes to terms of, like you said, like that empathetic piece and like recognizing that piece is, um, if people want to learn more, a book that I recommend is um, uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate. 
Gawar Maté is a psychologist. Um, he had worked in the downtown east side for many, many years um, in one of the hotels that uh, were turned into housing units. And the first chapter is like him talking to his clients and they talk about all these atrocities that they've been through in their life and why they're using drugs now. And usually the drug of choice is an opiate because of that painkiller piece. So whether that's physical pain or emotional pain. And then the next part of the book is like the biophysical part of it and like how addiction affects our brain, how opiates affect our brain and that withdrawal and um, like how our actions and our logical thinking changes when we're using substances. And I feel like reading that really like puts it into perspective that like, this is why they're doing what they're doing. It's not because of a moral failure or because they're a terrible person. Like nobody goes to kindergarten and like when they're asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, oh, I want to smoke meth and be a menace to society. <laughs> so, yeah. I read, I just got done reading not very long ago, the From the Ashes book. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good one too. Can't remember his name now. Jesse Thistle. That's it. Yeah. Um. And I was like, whoa, like so much of it just ma- like opened my eyes to like, it's not just th- like you said, they're not going to kindergarten being like, wow, I can't wait to be a drug addict and be homeless. Like all of the series of events in his life led him there, mm-hmm. you know, from a very young age that the trauma aspect in that book, especially was what led him there, you know, and not knowing his cultural. And, and I mean, it's September 30th. It's a great day to yeah. kind of think about that too, that it's like, and the thing with the Jesse Thistle, we think a lot of times, okay, he was Métis. His mom was indigenous. His dad was white, but his dad was the addict, right? That that's where it was coming from. Not necessarily what we would think. Like, what's the word? Like stereotypically you're like, okay. Yeah he's an indigenous or, you know, Métis, it must be from the indigenous side. It wasn't from that side at all, which was kind of a unique story I found on that and opened my eyes. I was like, oh man, like, and yeah, his mom was the the good person in the book, you know? And I think in society, a lot of the times that we think the opposite, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. And that stereotype does come from overrepresentation of indigenous people, homelessness and um incarceration and substance use and like yeah it's a perfect day to talk about it um, yeah today's september 30th uh national day for truth and reconciliation and i wrote down some numbers for that too so yeah in uh, grand prairie we do a point in time count and that's in um what's the word i'm looking for in collaboration with other cities in Alberta so that hopefully we can all basically count how many people are experiencing homelessness in one stretch of time, like a few hours so that everybody is counted. You know, you can't like be counted in Grand Prairie, get on a bus and be counted in Edmonton. Yeah. Um, And so the last time that was done, it was in 2018. We were supposed to do it in 2020, but COVID. So um, at that point in time, there's 228 homeless individuals in Grand Prairie and I think that's way less than what there actually is because um, especially 
because statistically there's more men who are homeless, but women typically, not always, can like have a couch to sleep on or have a friend to stay with or that sort of thing. Um, that seems to happen a lot more with women than men. Anyway, so of the 228 individuals who are experiencing homelessness, 44% of those individuals were Indigenous. Um, however, in 2015, the Grand Prairie Census, only 12.6% of our population was Indigenous. So like way overrepresented. And then another one is wow. um, in all of Alberta, Indigenous people make up 6% of the population. But um, from 2018, 13% of overdose deaths were Indigenous people. And in the first six months of 2020, it was 22%. 22%. So yeah, like a fifth of people who are dying of opiate overdoses in the first six months of 2020 were Indigenous, but Indigenous people only make up the population. Okay, wow. Yeah, so it's, it shows that like, yeah, this is a thing and this happens and it's because of intergenerational trauma. It's because of Indian residential schools. It's because of these things. And that's another thing to point out to people when they don't really understand. The last residential school closed in 1996. It wasn't that long ago. And we're still, yeah. we're still feeling the effects of colonialism and we're still feeling the effects of the impact of what that had on families today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, you that's think a about that's it. a wild yeah. statistic. I'm like, holy cow. Like, yeah. Yeah. And how can you erase intergenerational trauma? Like you can't. So it's, it's, um, I'm glad that it's an open discussion now and that there's more people wanting to do better. Me too. I am. Um, but what else can we do better? Uh, another thing that we can do better is um, pay attention to who you vote for. <laughs> <laughs> um, vote if for only we had this a few weeks earlier, hey? <laughs> uh, vote for people who give a shit about people who use drugs and Indigenous people and other visible minorities. Um vote for people who care about social programs because that's another thing too is that there's all this trauma that has happened to people and there still is trauma happening to more people and how do we prevent it from even happening in the first place um and that goes to like motherhood and parenting right like if we can support parents and mothers and fathers mm -hmm. to be good parents and to have the supports that they need then even if there's studies, I don't know if you know about like the ACEs study or adverse childhood experiences study. Um, basically, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. The more ACEs you have before the age of 18, the more likely you are to have like negative outcomes of like mental health, addiction, ADHD, and even physical health too. So things like diabetes, heart disease, that sort of stuff. And ACEs are like, if you were ever abused in any kind of way, if one of your parents was incarcerated, um, there's a bunch of different questions. Um, and so even if people have a high ACE score or if they have some ACEs in their life, if they have good relationships with their parents and they have that good um, 
portrayal of like coping mechanisms and they have that support, then they're less likely to have those issues. They're less likely to have addiction, mental health, diabetes. Um, this is where it's like really hard for me because I, I, I understand what you're saying with the relationships, but I also am like, how can a parent have a strong relationship with a child if the child's in foster care because the parent is a drug addict? That's like, yeah. I, okay. So I'll <laughs> tell you a story. Yep. I have two things. Cause this kind of gets me fired up, but, um, at, I was at Tim Hortons this is a few years ago. There's a lady getting ready in the Tim Hortons bathroom. She was high as a kite. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to see my kids today. Like she's got five kids. And I'm like, Oh, like you're going to see your kids. Like, I don't know if it's a good idea today. I didn't say that out loud, but and I have my like kids with me and I'm looking at them being like, I would do anything to be your parent first. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine is a social worker and she was explaining to me that I was like, so what, what kind of like, um, like mental health is there for kids in the foster care system? In this area, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of indigenous ch- children in the foster care systems and She's like, there, we actually did have funding, but we don't have funding anymore for it. So these kids are in foster care because their parents, I'm not saying like a lot of them are like, you know, maybe they're incarcerated, homelessness, drug addictions, like whatever it can come from intergeneration, whatever it comes from. There's no mental health for these children that are in these systems. To me, that's preventative Mm -hmm. because I don't know the statistics off by heart, but those kids are more apt to be addicts and homelessness coming out of the foster care system. So I guess like one question is like, why is there so much, you know, with the harm reduction sites and um, housing first and all that to help the people later on, but there's none for them growing up in it. I think, I don't know if this is the actual answer, but I feel like we have a very like reactive society. Mm-hmm. like yeah. we react to things before we prevent them yeah and sometimes you don't know how to prevent or you don't have the resources or that sort of thing but that it goes back to like handing out a clean needle like this is prevention this is stopping it yeah. from dealing with it later on and that needs to change obviously right yeah. and there's so much there's so many studies and so much research and stuff that proves all this mm-hmm. and I don't know why I think yeah. it's upper level. Stuff it's just that, like, it blew yeah. my mind when she was telling me that. And she's like, yeah, you know, then the foster family then becomes like their counselor basically, which is not their job and children still need a safe place to go to talk about their foster families. Not, you know, like they've got so many things going on. I just like, I look at my kids and I'm like, I can't imagine like an eight-year-old or a six-year-old in the system and having no resource to help them. Yeah. yeah. You give them a safe place, a warm bed, food, like a loving home or hopefully loving home, but there's so much trauma that's happened and then you're just like not doing anything about it. It just doesn't seem, but <laughs> you're helping their parent right mm-hmm. now. You know, that's like a really unfortunate yes. thing. I get the parent is human and we need to be empathetic towards them too. But then like the other aspect of it, I'm like, these poor little kids, like they yeah, need it, has it to, too. It has to be both. And until that cycle's broken, it'll just continue on. Yeah. 
But so you're saying there can be some connection happening, you know, positively, even if these things are going on, and even if the parents are learning to be reparented? Yeah, there is possibility for that to happen. Like if we're talking about like, the the ACEs score and study and that sort of thing, like, there is the ability for even if you do experience trauma as a child, um, there is the ability to be supported through that trauma and become resilient and not have those negative health outcomes later in life. And do you think that's why like kinship care is so important for those like connections? And especially with anyone, but I was going to say indigenous people, but like, why would you go to a stranger versus your auntie or like, or, you know, like it just, it doesn't make sense to me in any perspective. It doesn't in some cases. And then in others, it does to me because I'm like, I'd like just stories from my friends telling me, she's like, yeah, you show up at this house and like, it's not really like a fit house, but it still trumps Hmm. a different home because it is a relative. Yeah. You know, and then there's lots of, you know, they have to do interviews and make sure that they are a suitable home too, even if they are kinship care, but mm-hmm. um, it's just a broken system. Unfortunately, it's okay. a very broken system, yeah. you know, that it's, yeah. And like, it's so like for one, the one friend that's a social worker, she's like, you know, you go into this field of work, which I'm sure is you too, because you care and you want to change things, but then how do you change things as one person? Like, yes, you can change that one client that you're working with. I think maybe that's what you have to focus on is that one person at a time. But like, then you step back and you look at it as this whole system and you're like, ah, like I can imagine it would be hard. And I, I would imagine that's what also leads to burnout and just being like, I can only give, 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 give so much. And I'm still not really making that much of a change. Yeah. And it's, it's so ne- sound like a negative nope. Nelly, but, but it's a reality. It is. Yeah. And it's something that people need to be aware of. And like, it goes back to that other thing of like being selfish. So if you don't want to maybe care about the person who's homeless or the person who's a drug user, then care about your friend that's working with them, that their mental health is being affected. Mm-hmm. Like there's this ripple effect. Right. And like, And that's why I say, like, when I was asked, what is the, what is something that you can do? I say voting for these kinds of things first, because it's high level system stuff that needs to be done. Yes, you can. And this bothers me a little bit, but like, yes, you can go hand out toothbrushes or you can go give somebody on the corner $5, or you can donate your used clothes to coats for kids. Those are all great things, but they're not going to change the main problem they're not yeah like here's a band-aid yeah and that goes back to that reactive help rather than prevention yeah and when you were talking about the connections too like say with the parent and child aspect yeah I won't say who it was but they listen they'll probably know I'm talking about them um I had a conversation this person was a drug addict for years and years and um had a child taken away and she was saying, but I was a really, really good mom. And I'm like, "Hmm, okay. Like no matter the trauma that you put your child through, you were still a good mom at the end of the day, which we all have our different 
what we think that is, but it just kind of like made me think. And I'm like, okay, that she loved her child. That was a good mom to her. And coming from a home that was also drug addictions as well. It was still better than her mom. Do you know what I mean? That you're just like, and this was like years down the road after it happened that still I'm a good mom, like came out. I'm like, yeah, but look what now your child is now also a drug addict homeless, but you were still a good mom, even though you put her through that. Mm-hmm. It's just a really hard thing for me to wrap my head around, which is why, um, yeah, maybe I do need to have more empathy in that not understanding exactly what it's like to be in that situation, which I don't think we ever can really do that unless we're there, which I'm not willing (laughs) to do that. Like, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm going to just, you know, do some heroin and opiates just to see how you feel. Like I'm not going to do that, but it's just a, it's a really hard thing. And I'm an empathetic person. It's a hard thing to, for me to do when there's kids involved, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I understand, I'm understanding of that for sure. Yeah. I get that. Well, and I think too, Katie, it's like, it's so interesting, right? You grew up with an amazing family. So that's a part of it, right? Yeah. You also grew up in a family that waited for you. Um, Mm -hmm. So if there's something about kids, it's going to fire, like fire you up, right? Like that. And that's rightfully so but I think that's why these discussions are like so important because otherwise it is easy to be blind to them yeah it's so easy to be blind to them and maybe that's why I am a little because I'm now that you said that I'm like because I being adopted like my parents were waiting they were that family that was like I'll take anything like how dare you not take care of your children when there's like a home here that like I could give you right that there's people that are desperately waiting for a child and there's people that have them and aren't willing to do what they need to do to take care of them properly. That's where I think it gets fired up in me. Um, and I mean, there's obviously there's, it's not just mothers that are homeless and addictions. There's like Lindsay said, statistically men are, are make up a lot of the population of it, but, um, just when you brought that up, thinking about my friend as a social worker, it just like really like, just, oh, it just makes me, and my husband also was a product of that too. Like mm-hmm. Will came, his mom was a drug addict and left. And i saw the effects of him being that child that their mother wasn't able, I'm not gonna say willing, wasn't able to give up the addictions in order to be a parent. Right. Which and- is really shitty. I, that's something that I struggle with too. I, in the last year have had two miscarriages. So like, I want to have kids. I'm trying to have kids. I'm doing all the things, taking prenatal Mm -hmm. vitamins, exercising, eating healthy, not drinking. All those things don't matter. But yet there's people who smoke a meth every day (laughs) that can have children. And like, that's something that I struggle, have struggled with too. So like, don't think that it's just you, Katie, who thinks that way. Like, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to like sort it out in your brain. It is. Right. It is hard. It is like, you know, and I mean, Nulania and I have talked openly about like our mental health struggles. I mean, nothing in comparison to addictions, but you do what you got to do, you know, like it's, yeah. if you've got other people, like, especially children relying on you, you like, you gotta, you just have to do it. Like, that's just, Right. But that, you know, there, I had this one, um, 
doula client or potential doula client. Um, she was develop me developmentally delayed. Her mother also was had children and the grandmother ended up looking after them. And she was one of the first people in Alberta that had petitioned to get her daughter sterilized because she just was having all these kids and not taking care of them. And say this lady at Tim Hortons too, is like, how do you have five kids? Like in like you, Lindsay, you're like, I just want one, like just one would be good. And I will take very good care of it. But you have five and it's almost like, it seems like disposable. And it's like, it's not disposable. Like it's a human, like it's hard for me to have empathy towards that mother when like her empathy is lacking towards her children. Right. That's where I'm like, I need to like learn how to be more empathetic towards that mom that just can't do it. Or that, that dad that just not just moms. Like there's a lot of that men population. There's probably a lot of dads in that population of the percent that you gave us, Lindsay. It's not just moms that unfortunately moms get the slack, right? We, we typically take care of the kids, but how many dads are in that situation and yeah. have just buggered off and not had anything to do with the kids. Right. It's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. You know what though? It's the fact that you're like, I'm willing to be more open is I think the thing that everyone needs the most because, and I'm really glad that we um, have opened up the scope to be able to talk about something like this, because at the end of the day, it's a parenting issue from day one. A lot of us, when you do become a parent, you don't realize what hurts you're harboring until you have someone reflecting that back to you. So I feel like people who are struggling with addiction, they didn't know, you know what I mean? What, what exactly they've gone through until, until shit hits the fan. Right. So it's like, it's not for a lack of love for kids, which I understand. It's just like those people also need to be parented. Now, what can we as a society do to, start fixing that problem because it's not a them problem. It is an us problem Yeah. at the end of the day. So I think that um, it's super important to have an open heart to it as much, as much as possible. There's always going to be stuff we disagree on with others and how they live their lives, but it's so important. So. Um, well, no, Lenny, when you were just saying that, like I just sparked, I, someone close to me, we were talking had struggled with addiction and she was like you know I just it started with say Benny's I think it was and she's like I just took it just for fun and then I was like I'll just take one to mow my lawn and then I'll take one like and then she's like and then I was like oh my god this is a problem and she's like I didn't even realize it was a problem until it was a problem and she's like and then I was so far in that how do you get out yeah. Right. So it is, it's not just something someone does overnight. Like Lindsay no. said, you don't go to kindergarten being like, yeah, yeah. Be a crackhead. Like that's not what, yeah. And I mean, that's maybe hearing more stories of that, of, of people. Cause I do say when I see someone, a homeless person, I'm like, I, I'm like, what happened? Yeah. There had to be something that happened. Like, <laughs> I mean, typically they're probably not going to be a lawyer that ended up on the street, but like I, in my head, I'm like, what was their life like before they ended up there? Right. Cause it couldn't have been all bad. I know there's situations that it probably was a lot of bad that led you there, but like, yeah, what happened? Right. Which I guess Lindsay is in your field of work. Like you've got to see and hear the stories of like, this is how I got here. Yeah. And I've said it, I've said it to my friends and I've said it to my family. Like if I had gone through 
half of the stuff that I've heard what people have gone through and didn't have good support. So I've been super, super blessed to have amazing supports in my life. Um, and I know that if I became homeless tomorrow, I would have like five people that I could go crash with. They could lend me money, like all these things. So if I had gone through all these terrible things in my life and as a child, especially as a child, um, didn't have good support systems, like, yeah, I'd be out smoking meth too. Like a hundred percent. Like I just, it's that level of understanding for me anyway, but I've heard it. And more of those stories are coming out now with um, more and more indigenous uh, children who are being found at residential school sites and stuff like that. Like people are hearing those stories and people are hopefully moving into that place of empathy and understanding. Um, And it won't just be people who are working in the field to hear about it. It'll be more people. So maybe that's like a start, right? Like sharing the story, even if it's a shitty story is like, you got to share it. Cause otherwise I'm like looking out in my yard and I have a house and the people I surround myself with also have those things. It's like, nobody's telling me those stories about how they ended up on the streets. Cause none of them have ever been there, right. but say reading the book from the ashes or reading the, sorry, I forget the name of the book that you said, Lindsay, but reading those, listening to podcasts following social media accounts that are sharing like the stories of like Mm -hmm. the homelessness addictions and stuff like that. Maybe that is a good way just to be more compassionate and empathetic towards people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and taking care of yourself in that too, is a big part of it. And I know that was a question that maybe you were going to ask is just like self-care super important. Yeah. it, It, especially when, like you were saying, Katie, about like, you don't understand how, people can't understand or like that people consider themselves to be good moms, but their kids are in the foster care system. Or like, I can't understand how I can't have children, but people can. And Mm -hmm. like part of that self-care or self-care is part of like learning how to be empathetic and understanding of those situations. And then also really caring towards yourself and like dealing with that anger, that um, misunderstanding or that sort of thing. So it's not just like, yeah, I'm going to go take a bath tonight and feel better about myself. Like it's about learning about that self, letting yourself be angry and upset and pissed off. And like, this is fucked up. Mm-hmm. And then like, what can I do to change that? What can I do to respond rather than react? Like it's a huge, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'm not Self-care is not the, no, I'm not perfect at it. I'm not. Yeah. Um, so I, first of all, I want to say sorry for your losses, because that is, an, uh, it's an incredible uh, weight to bear, usually invisibly. So I just want to say that um, quickly. And also, I'm curious to know how, I mean, obviously, you're a very big hearted person, but how did you end up where you are? Um, yeah, I've always definitely been caring. Um, even as a kid, like, always be caring and kind um but I when I went to university I and I've never lived in like a big city or anything like that so kind of like maybe the things that people might think would lead to living or like sorry uh working in this line of work would be like yeah you care but then maybe like you have a family member or somebody in your life that has been or yourself that has struggled with addiction or homelessness 
or whatever, or you've seen a lot of it, like whether that's directly or indirectly. So I've never lived in a big city, so I haven't seen a lot of it um, from that sense. And um, I have never had anybody in my family be like heavy, heavy into addiction, maybe like functioning addiction for sure, but not like can't hold down a job, can't hold down an apartment, can't, you know, that, that struggle, that intense struggle. Um, so anyway, I went to university, I started taking more sociology courses, so like study of society, um, more psychology courses, so study of people, individuals themselves. Um, and I've always been really interested in substance use and that sort of thing, um, just something that I've been interested in. And I started doing volunteering in when I lived in Edmonton and was going to university. And one place that I worked at or volunteered at was called the Personal Assistance Center. And it was run by the Mustard Seed, which is a nonprofit in Edmonton and in Calgary. Um, and it was just like a store of donated items that people could go to twice a month and just pick whatever they wanted. Um, but it was free. So it was clothes, it was dishes, it was household items, it was toiletries, that sort of thing. And um, yeah, you could just go and access that if you needed. And sometimes they had things like coveralls and work boots and that sort of stuff, which was good. Doesn't the um, repeat boutique in Whitecourt do that too, Nalani? Don't they, if there's like homeless people that come in, they can just, they don't have to pay for the items? I'm not sure. Oh, I'm pretty sure it is. Like there's secondhand place, it's like a privately run or it's like right. a volunteer run secondhand place. And they kind of do the same where it's like, you know, if it's a homeless person that needs a winter jacket, they can just take it without um not just take it but yeah. they don't have to pay yeah. right um, anyway sorry Lindsay just to interrupt you yeah so and then I remember like I had lots of impactful experiences um working there and then I also did my final like senior seminar project um at the Salvation Army downtown which had the soup kitchen in it um and so yeah I just like had really impactful um, conversations and experiences with individuals and then coupled with the courses and whatnot that I was taking it was and I feel like when I, I went to like a very liberal arts school um, and so like I feel like that was like the start of my like socialism brain um, mm -hmm. or like fostered a little bit of socialism in me and like just I've always been like I said in my bio, like guided by a sense of like what's right and what's fair and all that kind of just like coupled and came together and now I'm in the world that I want to be in, which is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think anything that we do, we have to be like in it for the right reason. And it definitely sounds like you are because there's yeah. a lot of people I think that are in fields of work that that passion isn't there and you can totally tell and you can tell that you're very passionate about what you do even just in my I think it was at yoga teacher training or maybe not even it might have been like a moon night or something because mm -hmm. I think you were still in the doing the housing thing and you were like talking about it there but I remember you talking about like how difficult it was um for your own mental health of being able like and I can only imagine like you're 
it's not like you're serving people sandwiches. You know what I mean? Like you're like dealing with like the down and dirty of society really right of being like let's get these people into homes before we tackle anything else like one what a rewarding career but two what a really difficult career that would be so like what are ways that you take care of yourself um one is boundaries and respecting those boundaries and following through on those boundaries so I'm like the vacation police at work (laughs) so anytime somebody is off and like I don't have a work phone so it's my personal phone um not that clients call me but I use my phone for work and um anytime somebody's on vacation and they're like messaging in Microsoft Teams I'm like go away you're not working right now and anytime that I'm off work I turn off my notifications for my work apps and like the building could burn down and it doesn't matter because like me being there isn't going to change or me knowing about it isn't going to change the fact that it already happened. Um, So I am the vacation police is what I say. Um, (laughs) Was it hard to like find those boundaries, like set those boundaries? No. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) not for me. No. (laughs) Um, And then I also, um, um, what else do I do? I take all my vacation days. Some people don't. Um, I, one thing that I do struggle with is like recognizing like, and being okay with like taking a sick day or taking a mental health day. Like, oh, maybe like I could take a mental health day and it would be better for me, but I can function at work. So I should just go anyway. And like, I have mental health days. I should take them. So like, that's something that I'm not as good at, but like something that I try to do. Um, doing like all the regular self-care things that um, are important to everyone and are seen as more of like the typical forms of self-care. So doing the things that I love, eating good food, don't drink too much caffeine because that just makes me more anxious, um, get enough sleep. um, And if I can't sleep, like using tools to help me sleep. So I use sleep meditations. They usually help um, if I'm not pregnant because I have been in the past, smoking weed (laughs) yeah because that like just like oh so warm and comfy and great Um, (laughs) and um what else do I do yeah like eat good food eat food that's good for me um I enjoy cooking um and then doing the things that I love so uh usually every weekend that I can I go to like Grand Cash or something like that and go hiking uh, physically moving my body is also a really good one for me. I can't just like, I'll be way more stressed out if I just sit and do nothing. Um, I, anytime I'm stressed out, uh, <laughs> I think Julian likes to live vicariously through me and he's like, I'll run you a bath. And <laughs> Cause he's like, I can't fit in the bath. I think that like secretly he wishes he could indulge in all these things but doesn't because he's a man. Um, And it's like all out. So it's not just like, here's a bubble bath and like a glass of wine or whatever. It's like bubbles, candles, salt rock lamps, Spotify, meditation music, wine or tea or bubbly. 
um, essential Julian, oils. come to my house, like, please. Like. Everything. Like, there was one time I had, like, flowers here for whatever reason. You, like, put the petals in the water and stuff. And I'm just Aww. like, you're living vicariously through me. I know it. No, that's so <laughs> nice. Uh, so, like, and that's another part of self-care, I think, is, like, letting people support you. Yeah. Right? Like, don't just think that you need to do it all or that you can do it all because you can't. It all. and choosing someone that can yeah. do that for you right like not choosing someone that's just like a hard ass which mm-hmm. I don't think I mean that's a whole other a topic but yeah I just can't imagine you with just like suck it up let's <laughs> just move on yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. like I picture you with someone that's spreading <laughs> rose petals in the bathtub also I'm having this really weird like not that I'm picturing Julian naked, but like him in a bathtub, like I just can't get it out of my head. Like I just imagine his knees being like up around his like ears. Yeah. Like, I mean, men in a bathtub is just a weird thing anyway, but like, especially like a giant man. Okay. How tall is he? You guys are describing him like literal jolly green giant. Five. He's six oh. five. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So and also Lindsay, like you're really tiny. So I think that really like accentuates <laughs> his giantness. Right? Yeah, like, I Lindsay, think he's like 14 <laughs> inches taller than me. Like he's over a foot taller than me. <laughs> and his, so I can put my shoes on my feet and then put them inside his shoes. <laughs> oh, my oh my gosh. So yeah. And then I guess like other self-care would be like the hard things that people don't see as self-care or don't want to do as self-care. Right. So seeing a therapist. Yeah. Booking doctor's appointments and attending doctor's appointments. Um, and like all those things that like, oh, my tooth hurts, but I'm going to avoid going to the dentist. No, just go to the fucking dentist. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And like having those like maybe hard conversations about setting boundaries or following through with those boundaries because for some people they might not see that as self-care or they don't want to do it but that is really important like saying no don't be a people pleaser live your best life (laughs) yeah yeah you have to like I'm just picturing like a lot of like regulating the vagus nerve or your like your (laughs) like you know what I mean um regulating your nervous system because it would have to be you would have to be on kind of like high alert like a lot am I right or am I wrong here yeah so it's not so much anymore that I'm not doing frontline work Um, right so I'm not interacting with clients as much anymore I still see them and I still talk to them and I still hand out supplies and stuff like that every now and then but um yeah when I was working street outreach there would be times where like I'd be like, maybe like driving from appointment to appointment with clients or without, no, it was without clients. So I wasn't even like around clients and I would still feel like so anxious. And I'd be like, why am I anxious? Like nobody's here. Nobody, like I'm safe, like all these things, but I'm still just like amped on like other. And I think also I'm like, I've been told and I believe it a little bit myself of like being an empath and like picking up on other people's energy and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I'm holding on to everyone else's shit and you have to like not or just like learn to like boundaries and then also regulating that after the fact. So um, I feel like I've needed a lot of regulation in the last year because of COVID and pregnancy loss and all these changes in life that we're going through. Um, And I've really 
fallen into meditation and meditation has like been the single most helpful, not the single, but like the most helpful thing for me that like has never been as helpful before. So like, it's something that like, I just do like a guided meditation for anxiety and I feel so much better. I usually like cry and like don't have a good time while I'm doing it, but I feel better. (laughs) So yes, it's working, (laughs) but yeah, it is a lot of regulation. And that goes back to like, I need to regulate myself. I need to like not drink too much caffeine, um, drink water and eat eat regular meals. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's basic stuff right? Like we've talked about this before where we think it's like taking care of yourself has to be this complex thing. And it's like, it's literally the most basic of basic. You need to drink water, you need to eat regular meals and you need to move your body. Like it's simple as that. And I mean, if we all do those things, we do feel better, but like, how hard is it to eat? I ate a pepperoni stick before I got on here and a pizza (laughs) bun, but like, (laughs) you know, because I was like, yeah. I'm going to be really high. Like I didn't eat breakfast. I drank my coffee, but I didn't eat my yeah. breakfast. Like something as simple as that, that like, I know you have to eat regular meals, but like, do I shove back a pepperoni stick? A hundred percent. Like, it's just right. No. And I, I, and- I think that's so important too, because like a lot of the luxury, like you're saying like, Oh, like, yeah, bubble baths are nice, but like, that's not the, that's not the grid of it. Cause like, it's really the luxurious, luxurious stuff is more, you know, diamonds on a banana peel, like, <laughs> like it's, it, it's not going to be good inside if, you know, if, yeah. if you're not taking care of the real stuff. So I think it's super important. Um, especially when and also what kind of bananas do you eat? Well, I mean, I'm picturing this visual one time I saw like of a rotten banana with like diamonds on the outside. And they're like, this is what you look like if you're not taking care of yourself. Like you can throw lipstick on a pig, but oh I like that you know it's so true um and especially for people who are caring for someone else like you can't forget about you Mm -hmm. so are there is there anything else Lindsay that you want to share any other stats that you maybe had or any any sort of um insight or advice that you is really important to you right now um no and I think like ending it on like a way to ending it on self-care and ending it on um positive things like I have more stats but they're about like (laughs) overdose deaths and stuff like that and like yeah (laughs) shitty and it happens and Grand Prairie's not great for it and no but share them we would love I honestly this is I'm I think people will really have their eyes open for some of this so um, Grand Prairie is often in competition for highest rates of overdose deaths in Alberta, like between seven cities. So Grand Prairie, Fort Mac, Edmonton, Red Deer, Lethbridge, Calgary, Medicine Hat. Um, and, yeah, I said Red Deer. Uh, Grand Prairie is often in competition for highest rate. So we don't have as many overdose deaths as like Edmonton or Calgary, but because we have a smaller population, that makes our rate higher. Yeah. Um, and since 2017, we've had an average about four deaths per month in Grand Prairie. And um, so like some months it's less, some months it's more, but it averages out to about four deaths. Wow. That's a lot for a small city. Yeah. And uh, two to two and a half, statistically speaking, uh, people die every day in Alberta from an overdose. So I guess like in saying that, it's a thing. It happens. Uh, watch out for your friends. Um, and if they come to you 
disclosing that they have problematic substance use, like be empathetic, be caring, be kind, reach out to services and programs that they might need support from. Because that's another thing too that we can do is like be somebody who's not an asshole to your friends so that like they know that if this is something they choose to come to you with, that you're going to care and respond appropriately rather than saying like, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps or just get over it or, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's just like, I guess another thing is like, if we educate ourselves, then we can be those people that can help our friends and family because it could be our friends and family, or it could be somebody that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Another thing I guess too, is that um, with overdoses being so high in Grand Prairie, and in other cities in Alberta, BC, basically everywhere, um, is to get a naloxone kit and get trained on how to use it. And then that way, if you are somewhere in public that somebody's experiencing an overdose, you can help them. So where do where does someone go get one of those? Or so the you, can, for it? you can get a naloxone kit at any pharmacy. Um, and I've even called like pharmacies in small towns like Beaver Lodge, Value, um, Spirit River, and like, they all have naloxone kits as well. And in each naloxone kit, it has like a nice little pamphlet of like step-by-step instructions. So if you do get training and you forget, or if you don't have training, there's at least that in there. And then you can also get them at like, you can get them at the hospital, you can get them at public health, you can get them at Northreach Society, you can get them at the treatment center. Like they're pretty accessible and they're free. So. Okay. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I've thought of that so much and haven't done it. And it, talking about it now, I'm like, why haven't I done it? Like, I'm always like, oh, the liabilities or what if I did something wrong? But like, to think like, if everyone had that available, like, we would probably be able to help so many people. Mm-hmm. And you're covered under the Good Samaritan Act, as you are when you're performing first aid on someone. So yeah, you'll be good. Um also, I feel like if you're calling 911, they'll guide you through it too. So, right. Okay. Yeah. And you should call 911, um, especially if you're not able to deal with somebody overdosing yourself. It's different from like if they're overdosing at SCS or that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess we'll kind of end, end on a note a little bit of what what would be what do you feel like is your personal um, message to the world or like who, what do you stand for as a person that you would want to share? Um, like that one was not on the question list. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it comes down to like empathy and caring, like being empathetic and being caring of everyone, regardless of, all the things of why people are usually treated differently, um, then we would be in a much different place. I think if there's less of that selfishness, more empathy, and that's something that I try to guide myself with all the time. It's like, I care about this person. How can I help this person? Or how can I not put myself first in this situation because I don't need to be first? Yeah. Right. Incredible. This has been really amazing. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I was like, I was really happy to be reached out to Katie. Thank you. Yeah, no, we were like, okay, we need some like different. I mean, we do 
tend to stick around like the motherhood realm, but we've been like, no, like we want to like talk about more important, not that motherhood's not important, but not just, oh, I'm a mom and I did this. Like there's so much more things that we can reach on this platform. And yeah, talking to people like you is a great start to do that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, my mind's kind of blown. <laughs> yeah. like I said, like, I'm like, I, this is yeah on the unknown territory for me. So I've learned a lot. So even selfishly, <laughs> like, no, I was like okay. let's talk to Lindsay. I want to know more yeah. about what she does. Yeah. Well, thanks for jumping on my soapbox as people say. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming up to the hill that I die on every day. 